1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 16. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I would like to use this passage as a springboard or a starting point for a series of sermons. I will not be preaching the follow-ups to this every time, but uh, there will be some follow-ups here concerning this. And I want to look at the matter of defending our faith. But let me be clear as I start. I am not trying to equip anyone here to be a professional apologist. My goal in these messages are to increase your faith. I have no desire to teach you just how to win an argument. My desire is to help you have more faith. My desire is to have you help more faith as you walk through the daily life of your life as a Christian. I want you as an individual to have more faith. I want you as an individual to have more faith in the entirety of this book being true from beginning to end. I want you to have more faith so you can train up your children to have more faith and you can help train up your children to withstand the things that they're going to run into when they step out into the world. I want you to have more faith as you encounter your family on days like today when people get together and meals happen and discussions happen concerning things that are related to your faith and what you believe. I want your faith to increase so that you can give a defense for the hope that is in you to your mom or to your dad, to your brother, to your sister. Whoever tries to, as the saying goes, whoever tries to knock you off square. I want you to stand firm on this book as the basis for what you believe. And I want you to stand there even when your opponents or your questioners or your objectors, no matter how much you love them, want you to step off this foundation for what you believe. They may insist you cannot assume this book is the foundation for your truth. I want you to believe this book enough where you refuse to do that. Do not step off this as the foundation for what you believe in defending your faith. I want your faith to be such that when people say that Christianity is mindless trash and people think you've lost your mind because you believe in a fable or a fairy tale, I want you to be able to respond to that. And I want you to be able to respond to that with gentleness and respect, like our passage here says. I want you most of all to have your faith increased. I want you to be better equipped to run the race with endurance and make it to the end and make it to the end well. I don't want to turn people here into professional debaters or arguers. I want you to be faithful Christians. I want you to trust Jesus and I want you to trust what His Word has to say. So God help me. God help us all. All right, 1 Peter. One of the issues of 1 Peter is the issue of trials and suffering. If you read the letter straight through from beginning to end, you're going to see that. 
Peter's audience there, in, in chapter 1, he starts off by calling them the dispersion. They're encountering trials, and he tells them, you're going to encounter further trials. So leading into our passage in chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, verse 9, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And he uses evil in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now, he uses with regard to the evil that people commit in verses 9, 10, and 11, and he uses evil in concerning, in verse 12, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But then he uses reviling in verse 9, and he uses reviling farther down in verse 16. So there's stuff going on in the lives of these people. Evil was out there. Peter knew it. Evil is out here. We know it. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. So those verses, of, those verses that mention evil, verses 9, 10, and 11, for instance, I already mentioned verse 9. Verse 10, if you desire to love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Now, I don't think it is coincidental that this comes right after the book of James, as our canon of the Bible has been assembled, where James speaks at length about the dangers of the tongue in his letter as well. Then you go to verse 11. What are we supposed to do? Turn away from evil and do good. Psalm 97.10 gives us a charge. You who love the Lord hate something. What? Hate evil. And not just the other guy's evil. Hate that which is evil which bubbles up inside of us. Verse 12, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God will take care of them. Remember, vengeance is His, not ours. So in context with the rest of the letter, you get the sense that there was persecution going on out there. Peter knew it. Peter wants to help people. He wants to help people in dealing with all all that evil they were running into, whatever it looked like. We don't have a lot of detail on what it looked like. We can make some assumptions, but all we know is that there was evil out there. People were, people were suffering trials. And Peter's trying to help people in dealing with the trials. So, let's get back into the text here. So, it's in, it's in light of those people doing evil to the people to whom Peter writes that I think is why he says what he says in verse 13. He poses a rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, I read that and I immediately go to Romans 8. I go to Romans 8, verses 31, 33, 34, and 35. Because Paul poses a series of rhetorical questions in those passages. He says in Romans 8, 31, 33, 34, and 35, If God is for us, who is against us? Who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, we know that the answer to all those rhetorical questions is, of course, nobody with an exclamation point at the end. So in all of those, and then including what Peter writes, we see Scripture trying to give us reassurance. It's all going to be okay. And not just in the future. It's okay now as well. Because we have to be able to deal with the present when the present comes and confronts us. 
And Peter wants his present audience to be able to deal with the suffering, the trials, the reviling, the evil that they're going to deal with. And he wants us to be able to deal with the suffering and trials and evil and reviling that we're going to encounter in our lives as well. Peter's people had to deal with this kind of stuff, and so do we. Peter tells them, resist the devil. How? What, how do you resist the devil? Peter says, be firm in your faith. That's where I want to go with these messages. I want you and I want me, after these messages, to have more faith than when we began. I want us to be firm in our faith. That's my goal. And, and when you see the, the charge here about Satan in chapter 5, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, that can be somewhat impersonal. But if you make it personal... Your adversary, your adversary, Caleb, your adversary, John, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. The devil is looking to devour individual Christians. And he's going to use whatever he can to devour you. He may use what happens at your meals today that you have with your family. People whom you love. Your brother, your sister, your mom, your uncle, your grandma, your grandma, whoever. Now we know that the devil can do nothing but think that which is evil. We get it. But people who are evil are very inventive and creative. They're, they're, very, they're very ingenious. And so is Satan, <laughs> a fallen angel. He will find ways. He is creative. He will use people whom you love to attack your faith. He will use people whom you love to create doubt. What did he do in the garden? Did God really say? That's what he wants people to say to you. Does God really say this? Or how can this be true? He wants to create... Well, wait a minute. He, wa he wants to have us go, well, wait, wait. Did God really? Yes, God really did. <laughs> God really did say certain things. God gave Adam and Eve revelation in the garden and they had what they needed to live. The devil comes along and says, you don't have what you need to live. That's how he devours people. He cracks a door open. People tend not to walk away from the faith by taking a flying leap off of a cliff. They tend to walk away from the faith one step at a time. They believe, and then one day they wake up and see that all of a sudden they don't believe anymore. And then they're examining, well, how did I get here? Well, they may not even know how they got there. But they got there by not being watchful like Scripture tells us to be. Like you tell a football player, have your head on a swivel. You've got to be watching because things are coming at us all the time. So the devil is seeking to devour us and he devours us one thought at a time. And some of these thoughts may be presented to you by people whom you love in settings like you're going to run into today if you're going to meet with your family and you've got unbelieving members of your family there. They may challenge you. They may challenge you in texts. The devil doesn't care <laughs> that, that 
People whom you love are attacked. The devil just wants you to be attacked. So keep your eyes open. Keep firm in your faith. As Peter says, that's how you resist the devil. Verse 9 in chapter 5. Resist him. Be firm in your faith. Knowing. Knowing what? That the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Don't don't think that what you're going through is unique. (laughs) Other Christians have gone through it, they are going through it, and they're going to go through it. And it's been that way for 2,000 years. Nothing's changed here. So Peter asks that question in chapter 3. Who can harm you? And, and you're going to see as we go, as we just advance a little bit, I think you could make the point that his response to the question goes to what Jesus talks about when that issue comes up in Matthew 10 and Luke chapter 12. Peter says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? You've got Paul's rhetorical questions. Romans 8, nobody. Jesus says, when you're encountering these things, Don't be afraid of them. Matthew 10. He's sending them out. They're going to do great things. Cast out demons. Heal the sick. And he knows that people are going to hate it because they're doing it in his name. And they're going to be hauled before the authorities. Jesus tells them, don't be afraid of them because they can only go so far. All they can do is kill you. Now, Now we look at that and go, that's pretty serious. Well, Jesus says, there's something a lot more serious than that. Because Jesus says, Jesus says, do not fear him who can kill you, for he can do nothing more to you. Fear him who, after he is killed, can cast you into hell. I'll tell you, fear him. And we're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament that references that in relationship to this passage here. Jesus wants our fear and our dread, as we go to Isaiah 8 in a minute, to be of him. Now we think, oh, well, yeah, they can kill me. Well, you're right. Guess what? They kill you. To be away from the body is to be with the Lord. Now, do, do we go out there seeking to get killed? Well, no, we don't go out there seeking to get killed. But we know, we know brethren around the world who are killed for their faith. And, and what happens at the moment of death, when James defines the moment of death as the spirit separating from the body, where are they? Their bodies in the ground, but they are with Christ. That's not a bad thing. Jesus wants us to fear Him who can cast people into hell. And who casts people into hell? Jesus casts people into hell. He does. Peter says here, don't be afraid of people. They can only go so far. Okay. Then verse 14. Because he continues here in verse 14. The second half of verse 14 talks about having no fear of these people. Okay, The people who want to harm you, say of verse 13. Now, we know that, that this is not excluding physical harm. Because, yeah, physical harm does happen to people. But this is talking about eternal harm. Yeah, they can kill you. That's a physical harm. But they cannot kill your soul. They cannot, they cannot sentence you to the second death. They can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. Peter wants to comfort people with this. And I think, I think we need to be comforted with this. Is that, 
is that people who you think you don't want to run into at your family gatherings because they're so smart and they ask you questions you can't answer. And, and they challenge you and, and because they've done their homework and their goal is to do nothing but to get you to doubt. Peter says, don't be afraid of them. And I tell you, don't be afraid of them. Why not? Because you have what they don't have. You have the Spirit of God. They don't have the Spirit of God. You may not be able to respond to their questions as well as you would like to be able to respond to their questions. And maybe you can respond very simply to questions, or maybe your response is, I don't know, I'm going to have to get the answer. But I think if we're honest, even if we have the answer, how often is the answer, even if it is a biblical answer, not satisfactory to our questioners? Because they've already made their mind up as to what the answer is going to be. So they're not really looking for an answer. They just want to have an argument. Or they just want to cause doubt because they can always say, okay, well, yeah, I'll give you that, but what about this? Okay, I'll give you this. What about that? And, and you hop on that merry-go-round and you never get off that merry-go-round. The issue is not whether what we believe is true. The issue is they don't accept it as truth and they don't believe it and they're doing it because they're in rebellion against Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to go with all of this. This is not a matter of arguing that things are true or false. This is a matter of people do not receive this because they don't believe. And they don't believe because biblically they hate God. They hate Christ. Even those people who love you, who present the objections at your family meals today, or questions that are hard questions, they may love you. And they may say, oh, I don't hate Jesus. But if they're not believers, biblically, they do hate Jesus. And that's why they say what they say. But I want you, as we go through these messages, just to have more faith in that even if you respond well with gentleness and respect, as the passage tells you, and you give them a biblical response, and they don't get it, that's okay, because that's on them. They're responsible for their response to truth. And the more that they do not respond to truth, you know that they are storing up more wrath for themselves. And that's a terrible thing. But it's just our responsibility to believe and have faith in the Word and proclaim what we know and try and do our best to give a reason for the hope that is in us or as, as the ESV says, make a defense for, for the hope that is in us and just to proclaim the truth and let the Spirit work in that person. When they go out on the campuses, they've got the people who know everything. <laughs> okay, they've got the scientists, they've got the engineers. Okay, yes, engineers, Stephen. Okay, who are, you know, all these really, really smart people. They've learned a lot about science. They've learned a lot about biology and physics. Or you've got the, the philosophical types. Or you've got the creative types. And, and they know everything about evolution. They know everything about this. And they're willing to argue with you. But the issue is not the argument. The issue is they don't believe. The issue is they love their sin. The issue is that they love living in the darkness. Their, darkness, their understanding is darkened, like Ephesians 4.18 says. So as you, as, you, as you have to deal with this, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of people who are smarter than you if they're lost. 
Because they don't have the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit. Okay, so don't have any fear of them. Now, verse 14. There is an Old Testament reference here, and we've got a couple of references to places elsewhere in Scripture in verse 14. You don't see quotation marks in the ESV, but there, there are references here, whether they're explicit or, or intentional or not, on the, on the part of Peter as he writes this. But I want to address first as we go into the last half of 14 and into 15, and I'll address the first sentence in 14 in a minute. There is an Old Testament reference there. Now, we know that the, the men of Jesus' day read primarily the Greek Old Testament. They didn't read the Hebrew Old Testament. Hebrew was pretty much a dead language by the time of Christ. So they read the Greek Old Testament. And a lot of your quotations when you, when you, or, or, or allusions or inferences that we see in the, in the Bible from the Old Testament are from the Greek Old Testament because when we go back and look in our Bible, which is based upon the Hebrew Old Testament, sometimes we scratch our head and go, well, that doesn't match up with what's there. But if we look at the Greek Old Testament, we would see that, yeah, they are quoting from Scripture, and this is one of those cases. And, and the ESV does make, does make the right comparison here. It may translate it differently when you see in verse... Um, Verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. If you have something like a New American Standard, King James or something like that, it doesn't say that. It says sanctify the Lord. Or it may say sanctify Christ the Lord. Well, it's saying the same thing. Sanctify Christ, honor Christ as holy. It's all trying to tell you the same thing. But my point here in all of this is that Peter's going back to Isaiah chapter 8 here. Now, in, in, in Isaiah chapter 8, and we're not going to go there yet. We'll go there in a minute. But he's going to go to Isaiah chapter 8 because he's going to bring in Isaiah chapter 8 here as things are not going well for the people of Judah, Jerusalem. Again, they're in danger from the Assyrians. Isaiah 8 in your Bible has a chapter heading in the ESV entitled The Coming Assyrian Invasion, and the Assyrians were coming. So we're going to get there in Isaiah 8. But first... Let's look at verse 14. The first sentence in the ESV. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Does that make you think of anything else in your New Testament? Does that make you think of the Sermon on the Mount? I would hope so. Matthew 5. Peter says, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. What does Jesus say? Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Same phrase. Sermon on the Mount, same phrase. 1 Peter 3. Jesus continues, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. We've got reviling twice here in 1 Peter 3. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And Jesus talks about slander there as well. Peter talks about slander as well in verse 16. So we got some parallels there between the Sermon on the Mount and what Peter's saying here in 1 Peter 3. He says, you give a defense for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect, with a good conscience. Paul's not the only one who writes about the conscience in the New Testament. 
You do that so that when you are slandered, not if, when, it's coming, your opponents are going to say false things about you, make false accusations about you. They will, they will refer to you with pejorative terms, negative terms, just because you respond to them with gentleness and respect and give them a, a reason, a defense for the hope that is in you. The slander's coming. They're going to revile you. Get ready. And Peter says, what's the outcome of that? Blessing. Blessing. Don't you want to be blessed? Seeking blessing from the Lord is not a bad thing. <laughs> we tend to be, oh, we don't want to do that. Well, why not? Jesus pronounces all of these blessed R's in the Sermon on the Mount. I got a friend up north. I've mentioned it before. He liked to say, God blesses obedience. God does not bless rebellion, but God blesses obedience. So how do we prepare for all of this? Well, now I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 8 as the Assyrians are coming. What is the Lord's counsel to Isaiah? Verse 12, Isaiah 8. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Sound familiar? That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And I'll go on. It's interesting here as well. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who's going to be the stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel? The Lord of hosts in verse 13. Don't you see that in the New Testament? Peter himself in the prior chapter, 1 Peter 2, he talks about there being a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And who is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense? Jesus is. Paul does the same thing at the end of Romans 9. Says that Jesus is the stumbling stone and rock of offense to Israel, to unbelieving Israel. But for the purposes of this message, my point is verses 12 and 13. Don't fear what the people you're trying to proclaim the truth to, Isaiah, fear. They're afraid of the wrong thing. The Lord says, this is what you are to fear. But better, it's not what you are to fear, it's who you are to fear. The Assyrians are coming. It's a big deal that the Assyrians are coming. Who are you to fear? Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Jesus says, Fear him who can kill you and cast you into hell. The Lord of hosts here. The Lord of hosts. Him you shall honor as holy. Him, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So Isaiah is supposed to fear the Lord of hosts. Now, there was method in my madness last week when I stood here and talked about Psalm 24.10 after, after Scott read us Psalms 23, 22, and 24. 
because I was leading up to what I was going to say here today. I really wanted to make the point that the Lord of hosts, the King of glory in Psalm 24.10 is Jesus Christ. Because you can connect your biblical dots and get there. If we flip back two pages in Isaiah, if it's two pages or one page, and look at verse 3 in chapter 6, you see that the vision Isaiah has of the Lord seated on the throne is a vision of the Lord of hosts. John 12, verse 41 says, the vision that Isaiah has of the Lord on the throne is a vision of Christ. Go ahead and read John 12. So Jesus is the Lord of hosts. Jesus is the Lord of hosts of Isaiah 6.3. Jesus is the Lord of hosts of Psalm 24.10. Jesus is the Lord of hosts of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. And Jesus is the one that you shall honor as holy. Because you've got that cry of the, of the angels as they cover their, their angelic eyes and their angelic feet. We know this is uh, apocalyptic imagery at one level. But what are they crying? Holy, holy, holy. Just like the living creatures in Revelation chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy. The threefold emphasis of the holiness of the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, He's your fear. Honor Him as holy. Peter brings that in here and says, Honor Him. Don't fear what people fear. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. And I'm going to return to this matter of Christ the Lord in just a minute. But he wants to establish this first before he gets into giving it offense for the hope that is in you. This is fundamental because this is what happens in your life, should be happening in the life of the Christian, whether you're giving a defense or a reason for the hope that is in you or not. This is not something that you flip on and off like a light switch. We should be honoring Christ the Lord as holy always, not just when we need Him or sanctifying Christ. He should be sanctified in our hearts all the time not just when we need Him to help us as we're giving a defense for the hope that is in us. He wants to establish that fundamentally, and so do I. The issue of honoring Christ the Lord in your hearts as holy. Because He is holy. And we are to be holy as He is holy. Peter says that also. And holiness is not just that ethical and moral purity. Holiness has to do with being unique, with being other, with being distinct, with being set apart. Are we not as Christians to be unique, distinct, set apart from the world? Yes. Not just morally and ethically. Yeah, we're here. We're here, but we're not. (laughs) If you get what I'm saying. But we're to be holy. And we do it because we have honored Christ in our hearts as holy. That has to come before any apologetics that we do, any defending of our faith. Because defending our faith is not just a matter of being able to pop the right answers into your head, okay, like they treat, treat, train you in school, 
Okay, say if you're going you're gonna to learn, you're going to be in forensics class or debate class, and they're going to say, well, if you get this, you respond this way. Well, yeah, I get it, but defending our faith is not about just having the right answer. It's about honoring Christ the Lord as holy. Not just internally, but having our lives display the fact that we have honored Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. Because this passage is not just addressed to the professionals. It's not addressed to those people you might go to YouTube and see who've got all those hundreds of thousands of views on their apologetic videos. This passage, Peter's writing regular people just like us. Do we know the names of the dispersion to whom he wrote? We don't. How many people around the world know our names? Okay, ask Ask, ask people in, in Nepal, okay? You know, do you know Caleb Davis? <laughs> Who? <laughs> we're, we're anonymous to the world. But you know what? Christ knows our name. He's always known our name. I'll get there, I'll return there in a minute. But this passage is not just for professionals, it's for us. You. It can, it can be easy sometimes to think, I just, I just can't, I'm not equipped. Yes, you are. You've got the Spirit. <laughs> Trust the Spirit of God. Same Spirit of God that we see at Pentecost. You have that same Spirit. Believe it. Faith. Again, I want your faith to increase here. And this passage, this passage says, always be ready. Always. Because those challenges that come to your faith quite often come when you're not teed up ready to receive the challenges to your faith. You may get a text from your friend, your relative, all just out of the blue. Okay, you're, you're, it's, it's fall, you're watching the lions lose again, and this text comes. Okay, You don't expect it. Well, you're supposed to be ready, though, always, right? Always means always. Always doesn't mean always except. Always means always. And how do we do this? We train our minds. We learn what the Bible has to say. You know, it's interesting. You, you, I, I ask people, can you answer the two things that Jesus told the demoniac to do? The demoniac gets newly saved. He wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, No. I want you to go evangelize. And, and the guy, you know, he responds, well, Jesus, I'm not equipped to evangelize. Okay, I haven't gone through the class. No, that's not what he says. <laughs> Jesus tells the guy, you go home, you tell people what the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. I'm surprised how many professing Christians cannot do either one of those when you ask them. And I'm just not talking about new converts. I'm talking about people who've been Christians for a while. You know, if I were to walk up to any of you in this room, think about it. Can you answer those? Can you proclaim those two things? Because if I, if I, if I gave you a challenge, go over there and start knocking on doors, and if they will listen to you, go tell the first person you run into. Tell them how the Lord has had mercy on you and what He's done for you. Can you do that? You're going to be surprised if you go with people how many people can't do that who profess to be Christians. 
Well, that could raise the question, are they really a Christian? <laughs> you know, it's food for thought. But it's, it's being able to respond just simple things like that. Can we give a reason for the hope with his, with, that is in us if we can't even tell somebody how the Lord has had mercy on us? At, a, at, at root, we ought to be able to tell people what the Lord has done for us and how the Lord has had mercy on us. So we, 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 if we have that, that in our I can't do this. But Peter says always, and is not Jesus praying for you now? Yeah, He is. He sent another helper when He left. That means He Himself is a helper. We have two helpers, Christ and His Spirit. Do you doubt that they can help you, Christ and the Spirit? I want you to have faith that Christ's prayers and the indwelling Spirit can help you give a defense for the hope that is in you. All right, then the rest of verse 16 talks about, talks about things that a lot of our YouTube apologists don't pay attention to. Giving a defense with gentleness and respect. We know that the way to get attention on social media quite often is to be loud in one way or another. Whether it is through images or through words or through whatever, Social media loves that which is loud. The way you make a name on TV nowadays is to be a talking head who is loud. All you need to do is be loud and supposedly entertaining. You don't necessarily need to be right (laughs) or wise, but as long as you're entertaining and loud, that's one way people get attention. But that's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to do it with gentleness and respect, even if the people with whom we're dealing with are not gentle and respectful of us. They're going to call you names, whether to your face or behind your back. Yeah, they're going to call you a Bible thumper. Yeah, they're going to call you a fundamentalist. Yeah, they're going to call you a legalist. They're going to call you a Pharisee. They're going to call you unloving. They're going to call you judgmental. They're going to call you a misogynist and, and all manner of names. Our, our brethren of color in the Michigan prisons had to deal with it too in a different way that, that us who are not of color had to deal with it because they had to deal with the fact that their brethren according to the flesh would call them sellouts. They would say, you're worshiping the white man's religion. You guys are Uncle Tom's. That's what you have to put up with as a Christian. You know, name your insult. You know, you're going to hear it either, either explicitly or you're going to get it through the grapevine. But regardless, we still do what we do with gentleness and respect, even if they don't. So that having a good conscience, verse 16, when we are slandered, those people who say those things about us may be put to shame. Will they realize that they're being put to shame? Maybe not. But our, our concern is not whether, okay, did, did that person get put to shame after I spoke what I spoke with gentleness and respect? No, our responsibility is just to speak what we speak with gentleness and respect and let the Lord put them to shame. So that's, that's the summary of those five verses. And I want to I spend a little bit of time on, in what we have left on this issue of honoring the Lord in our hearts as holy. That... 
and, and talk about this matter of our heart. We know, as you've heard it from here, you've heard it by reading your Bibles, that, that our hearts are more complex than just that organ within our chest that helps pump blood around our body. That, that the heart is, in many places in the Bible, it's the seat of emotion, it's the seat of intellect. We know that the heart is where people believe, Romans 10.9. It's, it's where desires are. Romans 10.1, Paul says his heart's desire is that his brethren according to the flesh can be saved. We can sin in our heart. Jesus says that's where you can commit the sin of adultery in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus says understanding is possible in the heart. Our hearts are the sources of evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, Witness, slander, according to Jesus in Matthew 15, 19. Our hearts can be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this world, Luke 21, 34. Luke 24, 38, it says that our hearts are where doubts can arise. Jesus says our hearts can be troubled. They can be filled with sorrow. But he also says our hearts can rejoice. And I could go on. But why do I say all this? I say all this because I don't want you to compartmentalize your heart and, and make a distinction between your heart and the rest of who you are. When Jesus says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is he telling us, okay, you've got your heart over there in that corner, your mind over there in that corner, your soul over there in that corner, and your strength over there in that corner, and those are four absolutely distinct elements of who you are. He's not saying that. He's saying that that makes up all of who you are. You are... You are one being. He wants you to know that you are to love God with all that makes up you as you. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because we know people can believe in their heart, people can believe in their mind, people can believe in their soul. People can be troubled in their heart, mind, and soul. And so on. Don't take your heart and move it over to the side and think it's just this one thing that, that sits over here while you do the rest of your life with the rest of who you are, with your soul, mind, and strength. It's not. He wants you to, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. But that also means He wants you to honor Christ as holy with your soul, mind, and strength as well. In all that you are, in all that you do every day, in all that you live your life every day as a Christian. So don't just set that issue off to the side because it says, in your hearts. No, in you, Christian. That's what he wants you to do. You as a believer, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Because... Whenever, and when you think about what you're doing, wherever you're doing and whatever you're doing it, you're doing it at work, you've got a big project at work. Are you doing something in your work just with your heart? Or are you doing it with your soul, mind, and strength as well? You're doing with all of that because you're doing it with all of you. When you read your Bible, are you just reading your Bible with your mind? I hope you're reading your Bible with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of you. That makes up all of who you are. Because Christ is Lord over all of your person, over all of who you are, not just your heart or your soul or your mind or your strength. He is Lord over us. Us. As people. As persons. When you worship, 
Are we just worshiping with our mind? I hope not. hope we're worshiping with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all that is in us. When we're repenting, are we repenting with all of who we are? When we're confessing, are we confessing with all of who we are? And we're doing all this before Christ the Lord. You'll notice Peter does not give the charge to the dispersion here to to make Christ Lord. You hear that. Well, okay, some people will say, okay, you just need to believe in Christ as Savior. You can make Him Lord later on. Well, I'll tell you what, Christ is Lord whether or not you acknowledge it or not. We're to acknowledge it and receive it and to submit to Him as Lord. We don't make Him anything. (laughs) He is who He is. Scripture wants us to submit to it, receive it, believe it. Because He is Lord. The whole, the whole issue of Lord has to do with authority and respect. We know that your Bible uses that word in different ways because even Sarah calls Abraham Lord, right? Genesis 18. Now, is that a different sense of Lord than here? Of course. But we get it. She's, she's acknowledging respect for Abraham and she's acknowledging His authority in her life. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, isn't he making some declaration of respect and authority about who Jesus is? And he's sure doing it on a different level than what Sarah did with Abraham. Now, in the context of 1 Peter 3, Peter's charge for us to sanctify Christ as Lord or honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, that's something that should already be part of our lives. Again, it's not a switch we flip on and off. And if it is, I I would ask you to consider that. Does that mean that Christ is your Lord only sometimes? Or is He only Lord when you want Him to be Lord? No, Christ is to be Lord all the time. Because He is to have authority over our lives all the time. So when all this is going on, he wants these people to honor Christ the Lord as holy in their hearts. And you can't can't really remove context here. Chapter 5, he refers to Babylon. Is that likely a, a reference to Rome? Yes, likely is. So is there pressure? Is there pressure on these people? Is there pressure on these people to offer a little bit of incense and acknowledge Caesar as Lord and still have Christ as Lord? Possibly, most likely. But I think what he wants here is he wants these people to honor Christ the Lord as holy and Christ the Lord as the one Lord. Caesar is not Lord for 30 seconds a year. Caesar is never Lord in the life of a Christian. Whoever the Caesar is. Like Paul says to the Ephesians, one Lord, one Lord, Jesus Christ, One Lord who has given us His Word. We've got it here. One Lord who gives us truth. We've got it here. He can give us truth because He is truth. He has revealed truth to us in this book. And again, I don't want you to ever submit to pressure when somebody says, well, you just can't, you can't use the Bible as, as a foundation for you. You have to prove to me that the Bible is true. 
No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to prove God exists either. Scripture never sets out to prove God exists. Scripture declares God. And that should be what we respond with. And I'll tell you, they're not going to like it. In the beginning, God. There you go. Thy word is truth. John 17. A couple fundamental principles here. Don't, don't let them say, well, you know, we have to adopt a neutral position here. Because if they say you adopt a neutral position, that is not a neutral position on their part. That's a self-defeating argument. We'll get there later on. They want to say to you, you've got to prove God. Okay, I can say to you, okay, I can prove God, but you've got to prove to me that I have to prove God to you. They can't do it. It's nonsense. So don't, don't move off this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maintain that when he says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone to, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, it's always coming from here and here alone. Stand on Christ the solid rock and stand on his word because all other ground is sinking sand. You don't want to step on sinking sand in order to declare truth to people. Why would you want to step away from that which is truth to declare truth to people? That's not wise. You know, all of these things that we, that we can think about in, in trying to respond to all of this. And I'm going to have to cut this short. <laughs> um, all of these things that we have to deal with here in this passage. I know some people can, can think when they, hear, when they hear Christ the Lord and submit, even Christians can grate at that. Well, Christ is a taskmaster. Well, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not a hard taskmaster. Christ is kind. He's merciful. He's loving. He bears with us, doesn't he? He's given us a helper. We have help from on high for our lives all day long, every day. And we have custom help. I need different help than Craig does. I need different help than Mark does. We have custom help from heaven to deal with life. Your help is different than my help. But our Lord knows each of our situations. He knows the help that you need. He knows the help that I need. Chapter 5, 1 Peter, He cares for us. He's the good shepherd, right? He laid down His life for the sheep, right? He hung on that tree in our place, right? He's encountered everything in His life here on earth, tempted in every, every way that we are. He gets it. He always responded rightly, but He knows what we're going through. He can identify Peter tells us he suffered once for sins, verse 18. He suffered in the flesh, first verse of chapter 4. Jesus Christ went to the cross with purpose. He went there knowing the names of the people for whom he was going to die. You think of Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He went to the cross knowing Scott Haney's name. 
He went to the cross knowing Joey Valdez's name. He went to the cross knowing Stacy Sanchez's name. Brethren, he went to the cross knowing your name. Knowing your name. Nothing can separate his people from his love. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And, and I know that sometimes when I say these things or when somebody stands here and say, says these things, or you can read your Bible and you can see these promises, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes the immediate thought people can have is, but Jeff, or but this, or but that. Don't do that when you hear promises. Don't say, but don't. It's what happened in the garden. But doubt enters. And doubt leads to unbelief. I want you to read your Bibles and have your Bibles result in belief, not unbelief. I want to increase your faith with these messages. I want you to be able to stand firm, whether it's absolutely calm in the spiritual life or the spiritual winds are blowing at you 100 miles an hour from every direction like you're in the middle of a tornado. I want you to be able to stand firm in your faith through all of this. God, help us all to do that. Let's pray. Father, Father, we, we give thanks. Father, I, I don't know how to express the thanksgiving rightly. All I can do is say thank you. All I can say is thank you for your promises. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for your Spirit. Father, you've given us so much. You're so patient with us. You're so kind. Father, just the things that You do for us, the way that You have waited for us to respond in faith, that You did not deal with us according to our sin. Father, I know that we cannot fully grasp the greatness and the majesty and the wonder of all of that. But Father, we can embrace that of that that we can by faith. Father, Father, I know people in this room struggle with faith, struggle with assurance. Father, encourage them. Father, give them more faith. Father, help them to run the race better. Father, so that they they can sleep at night. They can have a good conscience before You. They can trust Your promises. Father, we all need more faith. Father, I know that at the end of the day, every sin is an act of unbelief. Father, help us to believe. Help us in our unbelief. Be gone unbelief. Father, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.